Daniel 6, 1 to 28. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three chief ministers over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the chief ministers and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And at this the chief ministers and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it is something to do with the law of his God. So these chief ministers and satraps went as a group to the king and said, Making Darius live forever, the royal ministers, prefects, satraps, advisers and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you your majesty shall be thrown into the lion's den now your majesty issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the medes and persians which cannot be repealed so king darius put the decree in writing Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and make every effort and made every effort until sunset to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the the lion's den. 
When he, when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. Issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Amen. Well, morning, everyone. Um, as Neil said, we're in uh, the last of our little series in the book of Daniel, and I pray we'll come back to it in uh, time. But this is perhaps one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It's one of the first ones that I read in my little um, Bath Bible books I had, which stuck to the wall of the Bath when I was two or three years old. And uh, it's a favorite, favorite story. So let's pray as we come to it together. Uh, it may be a familiar story, but I'm sure there's lots that we can learn from it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have been thinking all through the service this morning that you are a living God and the one who saves. And we thank you that you're also a speaking God. So please would you speak into each of our hearts this morning. Please would you show us something more of what it means to trust in a God who saves. Amen. Well, it's been a sort of busy summer. A lot of people have been away. So here's a little recap of what we've been doing over the last few weeks for those who've missed out. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, I asked the question, and I've asked it a number of times through this week. If you're a Christian, do you ever feel like a red dot in a grey world? Kind of marginalised, isolated, running against the flow of everybody else. Sometimes it can be really tough being a Christian. And the first week we thought about God who is faithful, always faithful to his people. The second week we looked at a quote from a famous pastor who said, there is a God and he is not silent. And this image on the screen was an image given in a dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. And it represented different kingdoms that came and went. But we learned that there was one kingdom that will stand forever. And that is God's kingdom. And we thought about what it looks like to put our trust in that God. Third week, remember the fiery furnace, this great image that was built, eight stories tall. The heat is on, who are you serving? And we thought about the importance of you and I having hearts that are transformed by God. Because if they're not transformed, then they'll be captivated by something else that is more important to us than God. When the heat is on, who are you serving? 
last week we thought, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, we thought a bit about uh, this illustration I've done a number of times now. God created man to enjoy good things. When good things become God, God just becomes a good thing. Uh, and we thought about the work of God to humble us. Uh, there's no place in God's world for a so-called self-made man in a self-made world. This is God's world. Uh, and if we think we're at the center of the world that he created, then we're very mistaken. And then last week, if you remember, we looked at what does the Bible describe the fool as being? Not a kind of funny, comical, court jester type character, but the fool is a person who puts themselves at the center of their world and their life and ignores God. And we finished with this illustration, didn't we, of the kite? Uh, Where does true freedom come from? It comes when we're connected to the God who created us when we live his way. So in light of that, we're going to come to chapter 6. And do you remember how chapter 5 ended? You had this guy, Belshazzar. He was the Babylonian king that followed in the footsteps of Nebuchadnezzar. And chapter 5, verse 22, we learnt last week, he hadn't humbled himself, though he'd been given this great vision from God to humble himself. And then you read at the end of chapter 5 that he was slain, and the Babylonian kingdom that was so great kind of fell to the floor, crushed, and the Medo-Persian kingdom rose up in its place. And this new king, a guy called Darius, became king over Persia. So when we come to chapter 6, we we kind of get a great collision. Uh, And Daniel's stuck right in the middle. And the collision is this. Three times in this chapter, you get reference to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which really represents um, the authority of the land. Persia was governed by their own rules. And Daniel was caught up in a land like this. But this truth comes and clashes with another truth that Daniel chapter 6 is ultimately looking forward to, which you can read in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 in the New Testament. This is a glorious truth that will get your heart going if you're a Christian believer. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And these two truths clash because Daniel is stuck in the middle between a land that says our land and our rules are what rule and what come first. And the living God says, no, I come first because I am the only God that can save. And they hit and Daniel's there in the middle. What's he going to do? We'll come to Daniel chapter six, verses three to five. Daniel so distinguished himself among the chief ministers and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the chief ministers and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find a basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So what you get here is Daniel stuck in the middle, and he has to decide, who's he going to be loyal to? Is he going to be loyal to the law of the land? Is he going to be loyal to God? And he is stuck in the middle. And this is hugely significant for us, because if you ever, like me, feel like a red dot in a grey world, you'll meet all the time in different ways, the world's values and God's values, and they clash. And you're stuck in the middle... And you've got to decide which way you're going to turn. And it's a daily decision that you and I have to make. So I want to look at three qualities of Daniel that you see in this chapter this morning that will help us as we live as red dots in a grey world. And here's the first quality. I want you to think about Daniel's character. 
I always like to um, describe character a little bit like a tube of toothpaste. You don't always know a person's character, but when life squeezes you, like when I squeeze this tube of toothpaste, you suddenly see what comes out. Now, no surprise, it's Colgate, it's toothpaste. But it's a bit like that in life. When your character, when your, when your life is squeezed, when you're under pressure, you suddenly reveal what's inside you because it comes out. And so often, our character is the thing that comes out when life is difficult. And I want us to notice Daniel's incredible character in this chapter. Verse 3, Daniel so distinguished himself among the chief ministers and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, we've learned all, all the way through Daniel, haven't we, that Daniel was a man who was incredibly able. He was very competent. In chapter 1, he was described as being ten times wiser than any of the wise men of Babylon. In chapter 2, we read that he spoke with wisdom and tact. Uh, chapter 2, verse 48, he was therefore placed over all the wise men. So he's kind of the top of the pile. But verse 3, where it talks about him being distinguished, that's not a verb or a word that so speaks of um, his ability. It's more a word that speaks of his character. That word distinguished is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe a person who possesses in abundance the Spirit of God. So here, the writer is drawing attention to the character of Daniel. And we read that he is trustworthy and not corrupt nor negligent. Now just remember, Daniel is living and witnessing, and he's not doing that in a kind of cultural vacuum. He was taken out of Jerusalem, God's city, taken off to Babylon. As the crow flies, that's 520 miles. But the journey they would have taken would have been 900 miles. Daniel is not in his home. And he's had to learn a foreign language. He's had to learn a foreign culture. He's been lavished with gifts because he's very able. He's been lavished with status. He's living in Babylon that's an incredibly affluent place. And so there are so many different pressures that are squeezing him, like when I was squeezing the tube of toothpaste. And the question is, what was going to come out of Daniel when he was under pressure? Well, we saw that he was trustworthy and not corrupt nor negligent. That's what came out of him. And here's the question for you or I. What comes out of me when I am squeezed? When I'm under pressure? Second question, where would I like to see a greater work of God's grace to help me to change? I'll just give you a moment just to reflect on those two questions, just in the quietness of your own heart. It's worth continuing to ponder on that, isn't it, on those questions. When I'm squeezed, when life gets difficult, what comes out of me? And we all need to continue to grow in Christian grace and in character, so that like Daniel, when he's under great pressure, what came out of him was something that honored God. Notice the second thing, though, another quality of Daniel. Notice his prayerfulness. Verse 6. The chief ministers and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May Darius, King, king Darius, live forever. And so all these important people agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, I think that's a pretty lame law. Here they've got this great king that they want to uphold, and they say, worship him for 30 days. That's a rubbish law. If he's really as powerful as everyone says he is, worship him all the day, every day, not for 30 days. 
But they say worship him for 30 days. And then Daniel has a decision. And it's, an ex- it's, a, it's a costly decision. Is he going to worship a created thing? Or as we looked at last week and the week before, will he worship the God who holds his life in his hands? Because this decision is going to cost him. If he chooses to worship the living God, then he's almost certainly going to die because he's been threatened to be thrown to the lions. But notice verse 10 and 11. These are two verses that tell us so, so much about prayer. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room with the windows open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asked God for help. Just look at verses 10 and 11. I want to just draw out a few things that will teach us about prayer. Daniel's under real pressure. He's just been told if he confesses faith in the living God, he's going to be tossed to the lions. And what's his first reaction? He went to his room. That wouldn't be my first reaction. I would leg it or I would try and persuade them not to feed me to lions. But he goes quietly to his room. I think it's an expression of withdrawing from all the pressures of life and going somewhere quiet where he can be with God. I was speaking to a really good friend this week just saying, in the business of your life, can you just grab five minutes to get away from the pressures of life to be still with God? And I think that's what you see on view here with Daniel. He went to his room and had a moment of quiet. Notice too, he gets down on his knees. I don't know how you pray. There's nothing wrong with maybe lying in bed on our back and praying. But I suspect if anything like me, and you have these good intentions lasting at night when you lie on your bed to pray, you just fall asleep. There is something about our posture in prayer that can help us to pray. And I think some of the saints of old who perhaps would model to us physically getting on our knees to pray have actually a lot to teach us because when you get on your knee and pray, it's a posture of humility, but it also helps you to pray. It's not the most comfortable place to be. But when I'm on my knees, I'm not rushing about. And when I'm on my knees, I remember why I'm there and why I'm praying. And there might be something in that for some here if you struggle to pray. As he gets down his knees, he recognizes he's coming before the God who holds his life in his hands. He went to his room, he gets down his knees, and he prayed. Here's something that's remarkable. Everything around Daniel was trying to stop him from praying, including a law that said if you pray, you're going to be killed. Do you ever feel like that in your own life, where everything around us stops you from praying? There's work. The dishwasher is beeping, the washing machine is beeping, the child is screaming, the nappy knee is changing, the bank knee is paying. It just goes on and on and on. We live in a world that's always distracting us and there's always something that will stop us praying, always. But the amazing thing is here for Daniel, prayer was something that could never, ever, ever be taken away from him. And even in a moment where they throw into the lion's den, he still had direct access to God in prayer. It's one of the greatest privileges you have as a follower of Jesus to be able to pray to the God who made you anytime and nobody can take that away from you you could lock me up for preaching but you couldn't stop me praying and that was the experience of Paul in the scriptures notice too he prays three times I don't think that's a prescription of how many times we should pray I think it's more a description of a life of persistent prayer because prayer is not so much an action I do to tick the box it's more a lifestyle Have I got a prayerful lifestyle where I continually come before God in dependence? 
I've mentioned this book before, um, A Praying Life, by a guy called Paul Miller. I think this is a brilliant book on prayer. Uh, And it's a book that encourages us to have a prayerful life rather than be just uh, people who pray and that's it. Uh, And if you want some stimulus for your own prayer life, I'd really recommend this book. Uh, It might well help us. As he prays, notice as well, this made me chuckle when I read this, he gives thanks. Daniel's about to be fed to a load of hungry lions and he gives thanks. So big is his heart for the living God that he's not so worried about his own situation. He's more worried about everything he can thank God for. And I think here's a great example to us of someone who's able to always give thanks to God, even though so much stuff around him is taken away. And finally, he looks through a window opened towards Jerusalem. Now here, I don't think Daniel has got some sort of sentimental attachment to a pile of rubble in Jerusalem. He loves his city. But as he looks back to the city, he's not looking back longing he was there, though I'm sure he did, because he knows that God has a purpose for him in Babylon and now in Persia. I think he's looking back to the city because it was Jerusalem that was God's city, the place where God had been faithful to his people, where God's promises had been made. The place where God's people had worshipped him with joy. And so as he looks back to Jerusalem, he's saying, I may be in Persia, but I don't serve a Persian God. And he looks through the window back at his old city and says, that is the city of the God who I serve. And Daniel knows that that God has come with him into exile and is now with him in Persia. Karl Barth, the famous theologian, famously once said, To clasp your hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. To clasp your hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. Because when I pray, I'm declaring to God, this world is broken and I cannot do anything about it. I'm not in control. But I know one who is, the one who holds my life in his hands. And I will pray because I know that he has power. And finally, notice Daniel's faithfulness. In verses 11 to 13, uh, pressure is applied on this king to pass this law that's going to lead to Daniel's death. And we see in verse 14, there's clearly some affection between Darius and Daniel. He doesn't want him to die. He knows that he's the sort of top of his civil service. He doesn't want this man to die. But verse 16, pressure prevails and Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. Now, uh, one of uh, the things that the Bible says about pastors is that they have to guard the flock. And uh, when uh, Izzy went to Swaziland yesterday, I thought I should take this with me to protect her. And uh, this thing ran out of the airport and attacked her, so um, I shot it dead. I didn't really. This is just an air rifle, and it wouldn't shoot a lion. Um, Yes, that is a real lion, or at least it was. Uh, My great-grandfather shot this fella a long, long time ago in Africa. He was serving the British Army. And this lion was um, attacking all the goats in the compound. So he climbed a tree and shot it twice. Uh, And this is uh, a lion which, if it continued to eat things in the village, might have eaten my great-grandfather. And I might not be here, so I have a lot to owe to the bullet that's somewhere in his heart. Uh, I wanted to bring the lion here just for sort of some visual effects. So as you look at this thing in the face, just imagine what it would be like to be thrown into a lion's den. Many here might have even seen a live lion in parts of Africa or elsewhere in the world. and It's pretty terrifying. Uh, This is a great beast 
who there would be no chance against. But here's the thing about Daniel. Notice his faithfulness. Knowing that he's going to be thrown into a cave full of these great beasts. He was prepared to go there because his faithfulness to the living God was more important to him than his life. It would be very easy for him just to worship this foreign God for 30 days, to be let off and then continue serving. But he says, no, my God is God, and you can kill me if you like, but I'll never serve a different God. It's a remarkable example of faithfulness. And I love the little phrase you get in verse 20, where describing Daniel, it speaks, it's, uh, it's spoken of him as a person whom, uh, speaking of God, whom you serve continually. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing, as it were, to be written on each of our gravestones? Here was a man, here was a woman who served God continually. I remember a friend who once said to me, a much older friend, yesterday's decision to trust God doesn't work today. Because the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. Every day I need to decide, will I serve the living God or will I live for myself? And in the heat of the moment, when Daniel was about to be thrown to one of these great lions, he said, God comes first because he is the one who's given me his life, my life. So notice Daniel's character. Notice his prayerfulness. Notice his faithfulness. But where does all this point us? The really important thing you see in chapter 6 is not Daniel, but God. Because he's the central character of the whole book of Daniel. And notice God's faithfulness to Daniel. Come with me to verse 17. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Here's an example where Daniel faces a situation that cannot be reversed. He can't get out. And the lions are hungry. It's an irreversible situation. Just park that and hold it in your mind. And look in your Bible at Matthew chapter 27. You can just flick forward if you have a Bible there. If not, you can listen in as I read these verses. Matthew chapter 27, and I'm going to read from verse 62. Matthew 27 verse 62. The next day, one of the, uh, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he, that's Jesus, was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he had been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. Daniel in the lion's den, an irreversible situation. Jesus Christ, dead and buried in a cave, an irreversible situation. But if we go back to the story of Daniel, keep your finger in Matthew. Daniel speaks to the king when the lions don't eat him, when he's rescued. And he comes out of the the cave that he's in. And he says this, verse 22, back in Daniel. My God sent his angels and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me 
because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done anything before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. My favorite two words in this whole chapter come in verse 22, where Daniel proclaims with great boldness, my God. Because he recognized that the reason that he was rescued from an impossible situation that could not be reversed is because he was trusting in the God of the impossible. He was trusting in the God who he knew held in his hands his life. If you're there in Matthew, just go forward to the next chapter, chapter 28. Jesus is in the tomb. It's the irreversible situation. He's dead and he cannot escape. There's a guard. The tomb is sealed. And yet, what do we read in Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 5? The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So friends, when you read in the Bible this very famous story, which you probably read as a small child, about Daniel being miraculously rescued from a den of lions, this story was always meant to be a foreshadowing of an even greater rescue. And as for Daniel, where death was not the end because he trusted in a God of the impossible, so too with the Lord Jesus Christ, death was not the end. Because death met head on the living God who was the author of life. So death couldn't hold Jesus in the grave. And no soldier guarding the grave, no great stone rolled over the cave could stop the author of life from raising from the dead. And it was his sacrifice that brings you and me life. I don't know if any of you have been to cinema to see this film, Dunkirk. Um, I really recommend it. It's very different to any other war movie I've ever seen. But it's a great film. Uh, you'll know the story of Dunkirk, set in 1940, uh, towards the beginning of the Second World War. And there are many, many troops on the beaches of Dunkirk, 400,000. And they can't escape. And um, the opposition are fast advancing. And Dunkirk is soon going to fall. 400,000 men trapped on this beach. And on the 26th of May, 1940, King George, who's the King of England at the time, calls for a national day of prayer. And people with faith all over Britain were praying. Then on the 29th of May, 1940, he issued a call for anybody who had a boat in the UK to get in it and cross the channel to go and rescue the people, the men who were trapped on the beach. The problem they had was they were 400,000 men and they couldn't get home. But the amazing thing about this story of Dunkirk is that home came for them. And it was remarkable because on that particular day, the sea was pretty still, which allowed little boats relatively safely to cross the channel to pick up these men. But the clouds were very thick in the sky and the German fighter pilots, few of them could get up in the sky to cause more damage. And these 400,000 men who couldn't get home were rescued by people who came from home when home came for them. And remarkably that day, 338,326 men were rescued. 
because home came for them. And I think that Dunkirk film and what happened on that amazing day in 1940 is a wonderful little picture of the gospel. Because you and I, left to ourselves, like Daniel, left in the lion's den, had no way of escape and had no way of rescue. But the Christian gospel is all about a God who came from his home to rescue us who had no hope without him and to give us life. I think a best way to finish this series in Daniel would be to come back to Daniel chapter 6 and for us to look at the words that Daniel proclaimed when he was miraculously rescued from this den of lions. He is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And friends, that is a truth for any person in this world who they too can be rescued if they call on the name of the living God. That is my God. And I thank him that he is your God too. Amen.